0: 2.1 million. The number of civilian employees in the federal workforce.
1: 4,000. The number of political appointees in the federal workforce.
0: 1,200. The number of presidential appointees who require Senate confirmation.
1: 24. The number of advisors in the president's cabinet, and yes, all 24, require Senate confirmation.
0: 9.3 million. The rough cost of transition when Barack Obama assumed the presidency after his election in 2008.
1: So can we just wait a second, Dorian? Because I think these numbers are really interesting, but I can't really tell why they're an indication that something in our system is broken. (laughs) Well,
0: that's, you know, that's a fair point, Melissa. And to understand that, you might need to know one more number, 78. 78 is the number of days between the presidential election and the presidential inauguration.
1: Oh, okay. I get it. A new president has just 78 days to hire 4,000 people. (laughs) And the president has to ask permission for 1,200 of them? (laughs) That does seem difficult, even under ideal circumstances. And clearly 2020 is less than ideal.
0: Yes. And remember these 4,000 people, that a new president hires, they're gonna set the tone, they're gonna set the policy, they're gonna set direction for two million career civil servants. Two million people who deliver our mail, they inspect our food and workplaces, they manage our parks, they land our airplanes, they negotiate with foreign nations and and so many other critical tasks, Melissa. Okay, so when you put it that way, the numbers are downright daunting. (laughs) Yes, and that's why it's time for a system check of the presidential transition. On this episode of System Check, we talk with Max Steyer, President and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. We check in with John King, CEO of the Education Trust and former Secretary of Education under President Obama. And we get a final word from Julian Castro, 2020 presidential candidate and former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development in the Obama administration. I'm Dorian Warren.
1: And I'm Melissa Harris-Perry.
0: And this is System Check.
1: Dorian, before we get started, I'm thinking we might need to issue a warning for our listeners.
0: Oh, Lord. All right. Do you you know something I don't? Or or are you hiding an inappropriate surprise guess? What's the deal?
1: No inappropriate surprise guess.
0: There's nothing (laughs) like that. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, I thought you were going to explain why we need a preemptive pardon or a self-pardon or like dozens of them. I don't know. Listen,
1: Dorian, who the hell even knew that that was a thing? (laughs) But no, we don't need a preemptive pardon because we're not about to descend into nefarious, illegal or immoral action in the next 40 minutes. But we are going to maybe let our nerd flags fly. (laughs) So listen, system checkers we're still a new podcast you're still getting to know us so you might not yet realize that your co-hosts dorian and i are considerably maybe even ridiculously enthusiastic about process conversations
0: love process yes (laughs) yes you know we get so giddy talking about process and transitions and and melissa we realize in the midst of this that we kind of have this very implicit or idealized view of transitions and how they should work?
1: Yeah. So in every episode that we've done so far, every conversation, we were definitely assuming the system was broken and we mm-hmm. were bringing the fire, or mm-hmm. as Aisha Yandura might say, uh, all the smoke you came for about what is broken in that system. But I've realized when we started our conversation about presidential transitions, that you know, maybe we'd fallen a little bit for the ideal, this notion of democracy mm. and that the key aspect of democracy is a peaceful transition. Yeah, and
0: Melissa, we, we also learned a lot about some of the, the tensions inherent in transition, some of the threats, some of the vulnerabilities. And so it's hard to think about, frankly, what should be our idealized view of transitions and then how do we assess some of the problems in the system of transition?
1: Yeah. so. Maybe this is part of the warning for our listeners. We're a little less clear cut here. This is one of those systems that's really about tension. And let me just suggest here are the two tensions. On the one hand, government has to do things, some really complicated things. And in order to do them, we need a really professional, well-informed, long-term civil service. On the other hand, as a democracy, we do need the engines of government, the departments of government, the agencies of government to be responsive to elections, to voters and to outcomes. So part of the transition complex system that we're holding in tension here is how do we make sure we have folks who are insulated from elections and those who are responsive to elections, all in one big system. Okay, Melissa, but
0: I still want to get nerdy. And I'm wondering, can we at least celebrate now that the transition is actually happening? What's the story?
1: It wasn't that we were celebrating the GSA, that's the Government Services Administration, that they were finally giving access to President-elect Biden and his team. Although that is good news. (laughs) And we weren't throwing a party about the announcement of Biden's historic nominations like Janet Yellen or the White House senior communications team that will be led entirely by women. Although, hell yeah. No, we were over here geeking out about the chance to dig into the details of the Presidential Transition Act of 1963. (laughs) And not just that, we were also kind of nerding out about its amendments and expansions in the last decade.
0: So that's not weird, is it? Because I want to talk so much about the Presidential Transition Act of 1963 because it's a really important statute, right? Melissa, That does a whole bunch of things. It provides an incoming administration with resources, with office space, with software, with access, and most important, with information, all of which is absolutely necessary for a new president and their team to be ready to govern the moment they enter the office. Now, Melissa, let me just share. I'm struck by the multiple tasks necessary for a successful transition of power in a democracy. And in full disclosure, my day job requires me to be engaged in the system of transition. Now, I do this mostly by talking to Biden transition officials about you know, a range of critical issues affecting low-income Black and brown folk. But what I've learned is that there are three large buckets Hmm. of the work of transition. So let me break it down for a minute. Bucket one is policy and policy implementation. Let me give you an example. There's something like at least 400 anti-immigrant executive orders from the current lame duck administration that need to be reversed or rescinded. Now think about the magnitude of that number on just one issue, right? Mm. That's just one issue. Okay, so that's bucket one policy. Bucket two is what are called agency review teams or landing teams. Now these are the experts the incoming administration has assembled to talk to their counterparts and review the policies in the lame duck administration. That's so that they can prepare to hit the ground running on inauguration day, right? So that they're Mm -hmm. ready to govern. Okay. Bucket three is personnel. Oh, the people. (laughs) appointments, right? And we shared with you, the listener, some of those numbers at the top of the show. There's so much work to do in this bucket from ensuring, you know, a diverse and representative talent pool to preparing the hundreds of confirmations that will be necessary to govern. And these three buckets, policy, agency review teams, personnel, these three buckets in the system of a
2: transition are important so that you're walking into these agencies, you're in charge come January 20th at noon, you have to know before then you know what you're walking into. You have to be able to understand what are the big issues that are being faced by the agencies? What decisions are going to have to be made really soon? You know What good things are happening that you should be carrying forward? The agency review teams are the transition element that is responsible for making sure that the leadership coming in on day one understand what's happening inside the agencies. So the agency review teams or the landing teams, and you get different names for this work, are groups of people that are usually folks that have worked in or understand that agency. This
0: is Max Steyer, President and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization using creative techniques to support a more effective American government. One of their efforts is a Center for Presidential Transition, It's basically a wonderland for social studies nerds like Melissa and me. Steyer joined System Check to help us understand why presidential transitions matter to the system of American democracy.
2: Coming back to the basics here, like what is a transition about? And it's just, you know, short and simple. It's about ensuring that the new team coming in is gonna be ready on second one to be in charge. And being in charge means responsible for, you know, a north of a $5 trillion organization with 4 million people. I mentioned 2 million career civil servants, but then you have the military and reservists, hundreds of operating units. And when I say operating units, I mean the different agencies. You think of the Defense Department and the Department of Homeland Security and the Education Department. And many of them have very large subcomponents in them.
1: So this was when I realized I binged on the entire seven-season West Wing series one too many times. And, and no, Dorian, I'm not going to reveal just how many times I've watched it. But Aaron Sorkin will have you thinking that a presidential transition requires subbing in about a dozen new people who really just need to learn how to make policy while walking around the White House at breakneck speed. But Max Steyer gave me an entirely new and far more accurate appreciation of just how difficult the task of transition really is.
2: Of those 4,000 political appointees, 1,200 require Senate confirmation, which is a crazy obstacle course. Just to give a sense of how hard that is, the president that was most successful in getting their Senate confirmed people in fastest was President Obama. Of the 1,200 Senate confirmed positions filled in the first 100 days, he got 69. And so President Trump did 28. I mean, it's crazy.
1: Let's pause. I don't want our listeners to think Max Steyer was making a simplistic argument that government's just too big. Yes, there are 2 million civilian employees, but.
2: Worth noting that that 2 million number is the same headcount as it was in the 1960s. So a lot of times people are like, oh my gosh, the government's grown hugely. Not if you're counting it by the people inside government. And 85% of that workforce lives and works outside of the DC metro area. So it's not DC, it's actually everywhere, every state, every county and they're doing all kinds of important things that are vital to our health and welfare. And in the shortest way I can say it is there's no such thing as the deep state. I mean, the reality is that the career civil servants are there because they want to serve the public, and they understand that part of serving the public means listening to new political teams as they come in because those political teams represent the will of the people. That's the accountability side of the equation.
0: According to Steyer, the problem with transition is not that the government is too big. And it's not that we have an unaccountable, unresponsive, so-called deep state. The problem with transition is at the pivotal juncture where 4,000 new leaders swept in by a political process encounter 2 million long-term, well-informed professionals who have committed so much of their lives to public service. What happens at that meeting point
2: is decisive. So much of transition ought to be really this question of creating good relationship between new leadership and the team that's on the ground. Because the biggest mistake that I think any political team makes is alienating the people who are actually responsible for getting the work done. And oftentimes they come in, they're skeptical about either or both the loyalty or the capability of that career group. And they often then alienate those people And then they realize they can't get anything done, and then they rebuild bridges to those people, and then they leave because they're short-term, and they give a speech on their way out saying, I've never worked with a greater group of people in my life. And so you watch and you see this cycle again and again, and then you also, again, have some appreciation for what it feels like to be the career employee and why you have some change-scarred people on that side of the fence. Change-scarred people.
1: Considering how important those people are to every aspect of our lives, seems to me we need to repair our system of transition to ensure that far fewer of them are scarred by the process. Stick with us, because up next, we talk with two former cabinet secretaries from the Obama administration in order to learn more about what it's like to be one of those 4,000 political appointees tasked with leading a transition to the opposing political party. Stay tuned for our conversations with John King, former Secretary of Education, and Julian Castro, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development.
0: This is Republican President George W. Bush speaking in the Rose Garden on November six, two 2008, the day after learning his successor would be Democrat Barack Obama.
3: So over the next 75 days, all of us must ensure that the next president and his team can hit the ground running. more than a year now, departments and agencies throughout the federal government have been preparing for a smooth transition we provided intelligence briefings to the president-elect and the Department of Justice has approved security clearances for members of his transition team. In the coming weeks, we will ask administration officials to brief the Obama team on ongoing policy issues ranging from the financial markets to the war in Iraq. I look forward to discussing those issues with the president-elect early next week.
0: And this is Democratic President... Barack Obama, speaking in the Rose Garden on November 9th, 2016, after learning his successor would be Republican Donald Trump. So I have
4: instructed my team to follow the example that President Bush's team set eight years ago and work as hard as we can to make sure that this is a successful transition for the president-elect, because we are now all rooting for his success in uniting and leading the country. The peaceful transition of power is one of the hallmarks of our
1: democracy. And over the next few months, we are going to show that to the world. And then this should be where we can play a little tape of President Trump. But we decided not to give any system check airtime to the words President Trump has uttered or tweeted since being defeated by President-elect Joe Biden last month. Because as you already know, he has chosen not to put on his big boy pants to behave like every other American president. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> he refuses to acknowledge his defeat. He's utterly failed to articulate the democracy's stabilizing importance of a peaceful transition of power. And we just don't think there is any meaningful threat of an actual 2020 Trump coup. But the president's transition failure is still a meaningful threat to the system, and that system has consequences for you, for me, and the people that we all love and care about.
3: You know, I think in a, in a democracy, and you'll forgive me, I was a high school social studies teacher.
0: This is John King, President and CEO of the Education Trust, who served as President Obama's second Secretary of Education. King's career began as a high school social studies teacher serving in both Puerto Rico and Boston, Massachusetts. He joined us this week to discuss transition.
3: You know, in a democracy, the transitions are a particularly fragile period. They're fragile internally because even in an election that, you know, wasn't extraordinarily close, but nonetheless, there were a lot of people who supported one candidate and not the other. And that is a fragile moment for a democracy because there are, elements of bitterness that come from hard fought election. And so that's a, that's an internal risk, but then you're also vulnerable externally, right? Because all these other countries, foreign actors like terrorist organizations, they all see this is a moment where there might be an opportunity to take action against the country when there is perhaps some moment of confusion or where information hasn't changed hands. And certainly in the report, looking at what happened behind 9-11, one of the concerns flagged was that that transition between the Clinton administration and the George W. Bush administration was delayed because of Bush v. Gore and some uncertainty. And the 9-11 report suggested that that may have contributed in some way to additional vulnerabilities, which is not to say that's the f- reason it happened, but it's just to say there were some additional vulnerabilities. And so you have this moment now where the Trump administration, by delaying all the work that needs to go into the transition, is creating increased vulnerability to foreign threats that didn't need to be
1: there. Internal risks external threats, vulnerabilities. King's concern about the fragility of democracy in moments of transition is echoed by Julian Castro. Now, many listeners probably know Castro from his presidential bid in the Democratic primaries this year. He also served as the Obama administration's second secretary of housing and urban development, joining the administration after serving as mayor of San Antonio. And he shared his insights about transition with system check this week.
4: This is one of the hallmarks of American government that we're able to move peacefully and usually effectively from one administration to the next administration, not only without upheaval and violence that you might see in other places, but also ideally and oftentimes with cooperation from the outgoing administration to the incoming administration that allows the incoming administration to be as effective for the people that they're there to serve as possible. And that perhaps has never been more important in modern times than right now, when we're in the middle of a pandemic, when our economy has been damaged by the pandemic, when so many people are on the brink of eviction, so many folks out there experiencing hunger or food insecurity, there are a lot of reasons more than ever that we should want this incoming administration to be as up to speed, ready to go and effective on day one.
0: The Obama administration's commitment to effective transition in 2016, it wasn't just discursive or rhetorical. Secretaries Castro and King shared the specific ways that they sought to prepare the incoming Trump administration. First, Secretary Castro helped us understand what are called agency review teams or landing teams. These teams share that high-level information between the outgoing and incoming administrations to ensure smooth governance, even with changes in priorities or vision.
4: Each of the departments would interact with what's called a landing team from their transition, from the Trump transition team, folks who should be steeped in housing and urban development, subject matter experts, and people who might end up serving in the next administration. And they we would prepare notebooks that included where we were at on different types of policies, and then look forward what needed to be done in the 30 days after inauguration, 60 days, 90 days, six months, a year, and so forth. And they would provide those books, but also offer to sit down and have meetings and talk through these issues, the challenges, the opportunities. Obviously, the ideology that we bring, we're bring bringing to it
3: differed from theirs, but those meetings happened.
0: And Secretary King remembers...
3: I It must have been a three, four-hour meeting, all of us sitting in our cabinet pairs, going through exercises around the kinds of crises that might come up. Crises like a foreign threat, a natural disaster. And I will tell you, one of the conversations we had was about... What would need to happen if there was a airborne pandemic that came to the United States from overseas? And the importance of fact-based, science-based communication with the public, the reality that the world is too globally interconnected to completely prevent transmission. And so the need to quickly prepare to have the personal protective equipment and so forth that is needed. And I remember talking with my successor with with Betsy DeVos about how we had dealt uh, with things like Ebola and H1N1 and some of the issues that came up in school districts and states as a result.
1: It's worth remembering the experience of transition in 2016 must have been a nausea-inducing bitter pill for both of these men. Secretary Castro, a former mayor, congressional twin brother, son of a Chicana activist, co-founder of La Raza, was replaced by Dr. Ben Carson. I mean, a conservative neurosurgeon (laughs) GOP presidential also ran who had absolutely no relevant experience in housing, in urban development, or even in government leadership. And it wasn't any better for Secretary King He's the son of teachers. He himself was a teacher and a middle school principal. He served as deputy to Secretary of Education Arne Duncan before becoming Secretary of Education himself. And He was succeeded by Betsy DeVos, this billionaire former Republican Party chair who never served as an educator at any level and who devoted all of her advocacy to redirecting tax dollars away from public schools and into vouchers for the private schools that had no meaningful accountability. Which is why being nerdy, but also more than a little petty, I asked both men if they'd ever considered a position of, let's call it purposeful non-cooperation during the 2016 transition. And then, proving he's better than I am, Secretary King responded. We
3: are a democracy, we have elections, and the folks who prevail in the election take office, and, and that is an embodiment of public trust. And as a public servant, I saw it as my job to support the success of those who were taking that public trust. And President Obama was crystal clear from the beginning that we were to have a smooth transition. And he would talk about all the ways in which the Bush administration made sure, in the midst, you know, as you recall, of a huge financial crisis, how careful the Bush administration was to make sure that the transition was smooth, that all the questions were answered, that people had access to all of the information and materials they needed. And and so it was our very clear marching orders across the administration to make sure that the transition was smooth.
1: And in a like fashion, Secretary Castro remembered President Obama
4: set a great example and sent a very clear signal to all of us in the cabinet that he wanted the transition to be as smooth and as cooperative for the benefit of the incoming Trump administration's ability to be effective and you know, get things done for the American people right away as the George W. Bush administration had been for him and Joe Biden at the beginning of of their administration. So he sent out that message very
0: loudly and clearly. And then we passed that along to all of the employees within our department. Having overcome any ideological or partisan or frankly petty inclination to delay or disrupt transition in 2016, it seems to have given both Castro and King real empathy for the civil servants whose careers are marked by so many similar transitions. Both suggested that the new leaders in the Biden administration will need to engage in some meaningful rebuilding of those ranks if they hope to have not just a peaceful transition of power, but also to be able to govern effectively. Secretary King's assessment.
3: Oh, I think there will definitely need to be rebuilding both in numbers, but also confidence. My sense is that, again, this is not a partisan point because I don't think this is how people would describe their experience of the Bush administration. But I think during the Trump administration, people have felt devalued, disrespected. You know, I think about what's happened at the Department of Justice and the work that will need to be done there to restore the faith of the employees of the Department of Justice that the department stands for the rule of law, and that has been undermined. At the education department, I think where you see that most strongly is in civil rights enforcement. The department really walked away from its historical role as a civil rights agency, and people felt that. They were asked to walk away from protecting LGBTQ students from discrimination. They were asked to walk away from cases investigating higher ed institutions for the mishandling of sexual assault on campus. They were asked to walk away from guidance that we put forward on reforming discipline to address racial disparities in student discipline. And so there is a sense, I think, amongst the civil rights enforcement part of the department that their work was not valued, their views were not valued, they were not valued for their expertise. And so there's going to need to be that, that restoration of kind
0: of belief. And Secretary Castro shared similar insights. After Trump
4: won, at HUD at least, I think a blow to the morale. And here's the thing, when I walked out the door, HUD had less than 8,000 employees. That was down from over 16,000 employees when Ronald Reagan had walked in the door in January of 1981. So, we were less than half the size that we had been, you know, 35 years earlier. I have no doubt that if you look at the numbers now at HUD, that that's continued to go down and probably at a faster rate because a lot of the employees who have options. You know, they may be retirement age. They may be able to go get a job somewhere else. They're, they don't believe that the people in charge are actually committed to the mission of the organization. And you can write that story, I bet, at the EPA, where they put a coal, former coal lobbyist in charge. You can write that story at the CFPB, where they tried to totally neuter it. And what all that means is that the Biden administration is going to have quite a lot of work to do to rebuild the morale, rebuild the ranks of these departments, and that's not even going into the State Department, which has been totally innervated and a number of other places.
1: And here we find ourselves having gone full circle, returning to the key insight offered by our first guest, Max Steyer of the Partnership for Public Service.
2: So much of transition ought to be really this question of creating good relationship between new leadership and the team that's on the ground, because the biggest mistake that I think any political team makes is alienating the people who are actually responsible for getting the work done. Stick around. The final word is up next.
1: Lessons of this week. Presidential transitions are hard. And presidential transitions are important. When doing hard and important work, it's often useful to hear from those who have gone before you. So we asked Secretary Castro if he had any advice for the new Biden appointees currently in the midst of transition. And Secretary Castro's advice is this week's final word.
4: Know that you're there for a reason. You always have confidence in yourself and that you bring something that is unique and nobody else is quite like you and your your experience and not only your professional experience, but oftentimes what, what you have experienced in life. I mean, Joe Biden is putting together maybe the most diverse team uh, that we've seen, at least from the announcement so far. So I hope that they will always remember to, to not only not to think like you have to act a certain part or be a certain way or just be the way that everybody has been before, I mean, you're there because of who you are and for a reason and you're lifting up and bringing other communities with you whose voices too oftentimes haven't been at the table. And then secondly, you know, I found that it really is so much of of it both internally in the administration and then externally whether it's with Congress or with mayors across the country or whoever it is the department works with, it's about the relationships that you build. And so build those relationships from the very beginning, because that can either make things go a lot more smoothly and you get more done, or they can create a headwind that makes it harder to get things done. So right away, work on the relationships.
0: And that does it for this episode. Now remember, every week we give you a system checklist. It's a brief list of realistic, practical actions that you can take to help repair the systems that we check in each episode. You can find the system checklist in all of our episodes at thenation.com/slash system check, all one word. That's the nation.com system check. After you listen, be sure to check out this week's actions and help share them widely. We do have the power to repair or even transform what's broken. Thanks for listening. I'm Dorian Warren.
1: And I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and you've been listening to System Check. System Check is a project of the nation, hosted by me, Melissa Harris-Perry, and Dorian Warren, and produced by Sophia Steinart evoy Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Dee Dee Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Aaron O'Mara is president of The Nation. And our theme music is by Brooklyn-based artist and producer, Jackery.
0: Support for System Check comes from Omidyar Network, a social change venture that is reimagining how capitalism should work. Learn more about their efforts to recenter our economy around individuals, community, and societal well-being at omidyar.com.
1: The best way to show your love for this show is to subscribe online to the nation's print and digital magazine at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe join the fight for the once unthinkable progressive ideas that are now mainstream 80 percent off for our podcast listeners at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe and as always if you like what you hear please rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.